Welcome back to Canna Week, brought to you by New Frontier Data, where we deliver the week's top headlines in cannabis and hear experts weigh in on the impact these stories are having on the industry. I'm your host, Heather Wickline. Before we get started, if you are loving this podcast, please be sure to like, subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share this episode. Um, All right, today we are going to continue our conversation from last week and talking about the challenges staying compliant in cannabis. We are really excited to get a different perspective. Um, We're going to be able to sit down and talk with co-founder and CEO of Skip Intro Advisors. Please welcome Mr. David Feldman. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. As always, yes. Um, and as, as always, I'm pleased to welcome back our Chief Knowledge Officer here at New Frontier Data, Mr. John Kagia. I'm delighted to be back, Heather. Thank you for having me. Well, we are happy to have you. We know you're at South by Southwest Conference and a big speaker over there on the one of the cannabis panels. Is that right? Yes. I um, had a great conversation yesterday on the outlook for federal legalization and the implications for where the federal uh, nationalization or national reform movement is uh, for the for the uh, U.S. cannabis industry. So really good discussion. I think there's been some really great uh, talks, cannabis talks here uh, over the past couple of days. So South, South by Southwest has done a really good job bringing the industry in. Amazing. Well, David, you are our special guest today. We want to know so you have a long career. Um, what made you make the crossover into cannabis? What, what was the what was that aha moment that you said this needs to? I need to get into this. Well, I'll skip the joke that a couple of my high school friends made about getting into cannabis. We'll save that for for private conversation. But you know, I'm a longtime corporate securities lawyer. I worked with entrepreneurs uh, to raise money, uh, venture capital, IPOs, and I, I got fairly well known in this thing called reverse mergers, which is a way to uh, go public through combining with an already existing public company instead of a traditional IPO and wrote two books on that and so on. And so the first batch of cannabis companies that went public in the US around 2013 and 14 did so through these reverse mergers. So I inherited a few of those companies right around that time and started seeing the opportunities, started going to a few conferences, getting a few speaking engagements. Then a few years later, in 2015, I joined the global law firm of Dwayne Morris, which is an 800 lawyer, 30 office large firm. And they said they were ready at that point in 2015 to be the first top 100 law firm to openly enter the cannabis space as lawyers. And they said, do you want to help us build that? So I said, absolutely. So I helped grow it to about a 60 lawyer industry focused group. I was co-lead of that for for close to five years. And then I left really because my hourly rate was getting very high and my clients were a little frustrated because they're mostly smaller companies. And I really wanted to go beyond just the legal work and do more business and strategy consulting, put the rest of my business school education to work. And so that's why I moved on and founded Skip Intro, which is a business consulting firm, and Feldman Legal Advisors, which is our affiliated law firm. Amazing. So what have you what have you found to be the most surprising thing about the cannabis industry? Just as you're kind of, I'm sure from 2015 to now, there's been a lot of change. What do you think has been the most surprising uh, part of this industry? Probably the fact that, um, you know, the, the my world coming up in Wall Street, you gained reputation through years and years of experience and knowledge and contacts and so on. And here you can make us make a real splash quickly as somebody because nobody can say I've been doing this for 20 years unless they've been doing it 
illegally or in the limited market that California had for a while. Uh, and so you have many, many amazing young people who are kind of stars in the industry and, and rightfully so. They've earned it. They've been dedicated to it uh, and they have tremendous energy and so on. And that's been exciting to me. But I think there's also been this nice role for us gray hair types uh, to kind of help them, guide them, advise them uh, as they're figuring out what their strategies are. But that's that's been a big uh, adjustment from from my prior world where it's all about, you know, how long have you been doing this? And nobody really asked that question in this industry. That's so true. I mean, I feel like it's like dog years, you know, if you've been in this for, for three years, it feels like 10. Um, I know I went on maternity leave for three months and I came back and I felt like I was drinking through a fire hose trying to keep up with everything that's been happening in just three months that I was out. Um, it's unbelievable. I think I'm about 112 years old now. Or something. <laughs> uh, but I feel good. So why not? Nice. John, do you have any questions for David? I know you guys are old friends, but anything that you... Uh, David, I mean, you, you've been such a, such a pillar of the New York ecosystem. I'm curious. I mean, you, you have a unique lens of being a corporate lawyer um, um, in finance, you know, right at the, at the hub of Wall Street uh, prior to coming to cannabis. Kind of what's your sense of where, you know, traditional Wall Street is uh, on this industry and how has that evolved over the past few years? Well, traditional Wall Street in my world, which was sort of the middle market and small cap and micro cap, they're in it. They're they're into it. Uh, there's the Roth conference is going on this week in, in L.A. I usually go this year. I was unable to because of a conflict. But they have a whole separate lane uh, of presentations by just cannabis companies there uh, that, that, you know, most traditional investment banks are raising money for already public companies. Uh, there is still some resistance uh, for those that are over the counter and so on. Uh, but, you know, slowly over time, Wall Street has gotten it. Uh, there is still a lot of limitations in the higher level. You know, you don't see Goldman coming in and, and even Cowan, who was one of the first ones. They're, they're really just doing research and now they're starting to take M&A assignments. Uh, but that's that's as soon as some kind of banking relief comes, which we're all hopeful could happen before legalization, I think that could make a big difference to some of the uh, brokerage firms and investment banks feeling more comfortable getting in the space, even though once I sit with them and explain to them why they shouldn't worry about getting involved from a legality and enforcement perspective, uh, they kind of get it. And when they do, they, you know, more often than not decide to put their toes in the water. Yeah, we had talked to someone, John, recently that they were talking about how they just think banks are just kind of sitting there waiting, chomping at the bit, wanting to get into um, this action, you know, that in, the, in this industry puts up so much movement. Um, and the banks, there's there's over 700 banks. I'm not talking about investment banks, actual, you know, traditional, uh, you know, financial institutions that uh, that have come into the space. But the Treasury Department does put some pretty, you know, hefty requirements on them, as well as the broker dealers. Uh, if they're dealing with plant touching companies, they have to file suspicious activity reports and do due diligence and monitoring. Uh, what the banks that are doing this have figured out is, well, in, in exchange for that, they're charging fees to the uh, to their customers and saying, you're going to open a checking account? Sure, 5000 6000 7000 a month. And the banks have realized this is a nice uh, you know, source of revenue for them. And when the opponents of the safe banking law even some Democrats who say, well, this is just putting money in the pockets of banks. I said, no, it's putting money in the banks of small struggling operators 
who are paying a fortune to the banks to keep their accounts open. And we're really hopeful that that, that can change soon. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, okay, well, moving on, New York Times reported these weed sellers aren't waiting for permits like a dream come true. So New York State legalized last September, and while regulations concerning sales haven't been implemented, there is no shortage of gray market vendors seeing green. So David, um, the beginning of any new legal market presents a lot of challenges and opportunities. What do you think is the most significant hurdles for legal operators hoping to set up shop in a new market? Well, right now, there's sort of things we know and things we don't know uh, in New York. As we know, there's no even draft regulations out yet for the full adult use licenses that are going to come out. We have rumors, we have intel, we have heard a lot, but until we see it, we don't know for sure. But here's what we do know. Anyone who's looking to get into New York needs money. They need their team in place. They need real estate. They need to a proper corporate structure and so on. And you know, and they need to write a business plan. And all those things can actually start now. Um, but there are things we don't know. We don't know how complicated the application process is going to be. We don't know how deep a compliance uh, set of obligations are gonna create. We don't know how many licenses are going to be issued, although they've said initially there's gonna be 150 dispensary licenses. And we think there's gonna be a limit, but not a, not a massive limit, not a small one. And, you know, we don't know how costs are ultimately going to really look in competing with sort of the legacy market. John, what, do you, what would you add to that? So I know we've been keeping a pretty close eye on uh, New York. Yeah, I think, I think David has covered uh, the, the issues well. Um, maybe just the only kind of other wild card is without a clear understanding of what the regulatory framework is going to be, um, you know, New York already has a very well-established unregulated market. The illicit market is going gangbusters and has existed for years, and it is super efficient. So um, one of the key questions around what the regulatory framework is going to do is, one, um, you know, how effectively does it allow the legal market to compete? So, for example, looking at the, the, the delivery apparatus in New York, um, there's some very well-established illicit delivery services that will have a bike or two in 20 minutes, you know, and this is anywhere in the city. Um, are the regulations going to permit uh, the delivery um, operators the same level of flexibility that the illicit market has? Because um, this is a very con convenience-oriented market. Um, so, you know, these sorts of regulatory levers that, that um, optimize efficiency, they'll optimize uh, kind of convenience for the customer, I think are going to be important in New York, really in a way that they may not necessarily have been as important in other markets, uh, given the nature and structure of the city and the fact that uh, New York has a very high quality, very efficient market already in place. Uh, and then second is things like taxation. You know, New York is an expensive city, running a storefront is going to be expensive. Um, and so there's going to be these compounding costs that, that the unregulated market doesn't face that are going to be particularly pronounced uh, in New York City in particular. So, you know, what does that compounding effect of the cost of the retail license, the parking garages, the um, uh, municipal, uh, county and state taxes, what does all of that do to the final price of cannabis relative to what consumers are currently paying uh, in the legal market, in the un uh, unregulated market? 
And the result of that, um, the wider that price differential is, uh, the slower it is going to be to kind of transition uh, the consumers into this market. We do expect there to be strong demand, even if this ends up being a pretty wide price differential between the legal and illicit market. Um, uh, there's still going to be kind of strong demand from a subset of consumers. But the closer that the legal market can get to parity with the unregulated market, um, then we think the, the faster the legal market is going to be able to, to, to take off. Yeah, that seems, I mean, the delivery portion of that seems for, you know, Manhattan residents, but I feel like for, you know, the tourist population coming in, they're not going to have those connections of the biker that can deliver you whatever you want in the middle of the night, you know. Um, do you think that, I mean, what do you think as far as the tourist population having an effect on the on the city? Because I, I, I agree with John, a lot of these people that are doing delivery and have delivery set up that they don't have a strong incentive to switch over to the legal market. Well, yeah, look, everybody in New York, you know, has a guy, um, you know, who comes to their apartment and drops stuff off. It's really that amazing of, as you say, a rather well-organized uh, market. But, you know, uh, do you get a consistent quality from that and, and all of that? Not necessarily. I, I hear people who say, well, you know, last week was better than this week or whatever. So it's not, and, and especially now with the supply chain issues that they're being affected by it too. Um, and so, you know, the, the reliability of legal product, I think, will, will attract people. New York is keeping taxes at 13% which is not outrageously high like California's was, um, but they're going to have a real challenge, um, you know, competing with the legacy market. And I think um, they're going to have to, you know, do tough enforcement. And, you know, places like California didn't really, they pretended like they were, and then they kind of left people alone. They, they threatened them and they said, we're willing to forget what you've been doing before if you come and get a license. But if you don't come and get a license, we're coming after you. And then they really didn't. And people still continue the illegal market and don't have to pay taxes and all this other stuff. So the prices are lower and so on. Um, but if we make it as convenient as the guy who comes to your place with delivery and everything else, um, and there's a lot of people who um, don't want to you know, worry about getting arrested or anything like that. And, and even though it's legal to possess up to three ounces, it, it will still be illegal to sell it uh, without a license. So. I agree. And I think the tourist market, I mean, it's it's coming back quickly to New York, Broadway's reopened and so on. It's going to take a little time for New York to get back to what we were. Crime is up. There are some challenges. But don't forget, there's the whole rest of the state. It's not just New York City. Uh, and we've got a lot of population. We're still the fourth largest state. Uh, and upstate and Long Island, although Long Island has mostly opted out of dispensaries, although there are key sections of the Hamptons that haven't. Um, they still can do grows and, and everything else there. So I think it's going to, I think John said it perfectly, which is the retail market is going to be very, very strong, but it will face some headwinds from the existing legacy market. Right. Well, since you are a regulatory expert, what do you think um, plays the biggest role in improving the trajectory of a new legal market? Well, I think first we have to kind of look at what we want from the regulators, right? Which is, I think, two things. One is sort of helpful guidance, uh, but the other thing is hands off as much as possible. Um, at the same time, we need to keep out shady and sleazy players. Uh, I have been on a soapbox for a while now, uh, trying to convince this industry that the only way we're gonna get to true institutional status 
It's not about federal legalization, although that's part of it. It's also, there is a lot of sort of questionable characters in this industry. And there's not a lot of talk about it. Even the cannabis media likes to be more of a proponent of the industry and they don't talk as much. But if you get one of these like law feeds about cannabis, it's lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit going on. And we need to fix that. We need to clean it up. The industry was initially built by a group of men who I call the cannabis cowboys who started everything. And they, to their credit, took all the risk and, you know, didn't know what was going to be and, and benefited in the end, but they were not really the people who were meant to run these businesses. And that is changing. That is turning over. And some of them were kind of shady characters, you know, who came out of areas of wall street or real estate that were a little questionable. And we need to rid ourselves of that. And I, and I'm, and the regulators can help play a role in that part of what they're doing. And I don't know if this is good or bad is they're trying to keep some of the biggest players from to make it hard for them to enter New York. And they want this to be more about social equity and smaller business uh, benefiting from this. Uh, and, and that may be a benefit, um, but we also need from the regulators kind of the ability to scale. And I think the, the way they're gonna regulate this should be with sort of a Goldilocks approach, right? Not too big, not too small. Uh, let's, let's not have a very limited number of licenses, but let's not have an unlimited like California um, somewhere in the middle, I think is going to work well and give people the opportunity to grow and build their businesses and not be afraid of that. John, would you agree with that? Do you think that New York will take the Goldilocks approach? Well, the devil will be in the details, as they say. Um, <laughs> but but I have been heartened, given some of the regulators in New York that we've spoken to, just how thoughtful they are um, uh, trying to be about this. Uh, they spent a lot of time studying uh, the other markets. They've spent a lot of time talking to stakeholders in the market. And, you know, they are in an, an enviable position of one trying to regulate what is going to be the most attractive and most influential market in this industry. California, yes, is, is the largest market on sheer size. Um, but in, in my opinion, New York is going to have uh, implications for this industry that extend beyond anything we have seen today, just because of where New York sits at the epicenter of the financial markets, the, the kind of innovation, the fact that it is going to be the most uh, densely populated in terms of people per square foot market uh, or per, per square acre that we've seen so far, and the fact that it's been an epicenter of American cultural cool. So you take all of these things together, and I think the, the, the implications of even just this idea of uh, the United Nations General Assembly con convening in 2023 and the first jurisdiction where cannabis is fully uh, regulated, the optics of that is going to be unlike anything else we've seen. So the combination of that with the fact that you know there's been this very, very strong advocacy about trying to get social equity right in New York. They have been more progressive about this than any other state that has tried to do this. Um, they've telegraphed what they're trying to do, and, and um, there's a lot of expectation about you know, the ability to make this uh, the most, quote unquote, equitable, uh, equitably distributed opportunity that we'll have seen in cannabis to date. But there's so much money on the sidelines for New York, it's an open question whether even with all of the measures that they've taken in place, they're gonna be able to keep um, the tide of capital that's waiting in the wings from, from tipping the balance in favor of the large players in this space. So there's a lot of tension there um, as well. 
And then there's, you know, other challenges, as David uh, um, uh, pointed out, New York is just not New York City. You've got this kind of north-south divide that's going to um, mean a, an interesting balance of opportunities in the state. You know, they've tried to get a, um, the industry head started by allowing hemp producers to transition to cannabis, but, you know, cannabis is not corn. So the allowing people who operate tractors to, to start growing cannabis uh, raises some real questions about what kind of quality cannabis you're going to be getting from people who have been working in big ag. And, and you know, the, the, if the quality is not up to par, I, I was just speaking to somebody here at South by Southwest who was talking about the fact that if you ever have, if you're in California and you're producing really high quality cannabis that you wanted to move quickly, send it to New York because New York has people who are willing to spend a lot of money on really high quality weed. And so New York is arguably one of the, the countries, arguably the country's most sophisticated illicit market, certainly New York City is. And so the expectations are very high about kind of uh, and caliber of product that is going to be available in retail. And as we saw in Canada, particularly in places like British Columbia, where the first few rounds of product that came into the market just didn't rival what was being produced uh, on the illicit side. Um, getting consumers in, if, if they're not satisfied with what they're getting in, in the legal market, uh, will be a challenge. So there's a ton of these challenges or considerations that the regulators um, have to have to work through. And so it's an unenviable position, <laughs> um, but I think they, they are thinking very deeply about how to strike this balance, they're trying to find this Goldilocks approach. Um, and I think the one thing that uh, I, I suspect that they will try to do is at least build agility into their system so that you can tweak some of these levers as you go along to, based on the way that the market is responding. But we'll see. And I think we're all waiting with bated breath to, to see how this plays out. Well, David, you touched on it a little bit, but on the flip side of that, you know, you kind of touched on it with getting rid of these shady characters, but what restrictions do you think that might actually strengthen the existing gray market? Well, as I said, I think I think the taxes are fairly reasonable, although they're on top of the 13, there's going to be this THC-based tax, first in the nation. Um, I don't think that's going to have a significant impact. And unlike other states like Jersey that kind of let localities charge almost what they want in local taxes, New York is mandating what the state's getting and what the localities are getting, so it's fixed. You can't negotiate with the local guys, you know, what the taxes are going to be, so I think that's good. Um, but again, I think it's about breaking people of these habits of going with their normal guy who comes along. And I think that's going to be challenging. And I think the gray market will thrive, ironically, in the places that have opted out uh, of, of dispensaries. And they think they're being smart and keeping shady characters away. They're actually going to draw more in. Uh, Long Island is still going to use a lot of weed, even though it's opted out. Same thing with areas, a few, a few areas upstate that have done it, something like 40% of the towns and villages have opted out. Obviously, New York City has not. Um, but so I think that's ironic. So if the number of, and if the number of stores stays too low, I think that could hurt um, the legit market versus the illicit market as well. The convenience is going to be key. And yes, there'll be delivery and so on, but that doesn't mean everyone's going to have it accessible. It's not going to be like seamless on day one. Um, where it's going to be easy to get delivery. And so I think allowing, making sure there's a strong distribution of retailers, I think will make a big difference as well. Now, do you think, 
like how how much of a difference of a tax um, between you know being in Manhattan and being able to go right over the bridge into Jersey? Do you think that there that's something that they're going to face as far they're, as competition? Because I mean, you can shoot over to Jersey in like fifteen minutes. I mean, it's pretty easy <laughs> if, if well, it's that well, big of a. One of the reasons New York finally passed it was because Jersey passed it, and nobody wanted Jersey to pass it without New York passing. And so, and plus Cuomo was in the middle of his scandal and he had made it difficult in the two years prior and we couldn't get it passed. And he had to give up on the things he was holding back on because his political capital was mostly gone. And most of the things he was holding firm on were things about what control he was gonna have over decision-making. And he finally gave in on all that stuff. And also there were things like home grow and things. And, but he, before he, his scandal and everything, he really was trying to make this work well from a regional perspective. And he actually gathered a meeting of five local governors, this is before COVID, uh, to talk about harmonizing as much as they could. And so from what I can tell, and I'm not an expert on the taxes in all the states, uh, Jersey, Connecticut, even Massachusetts, they're pretty similar. I don't think the prices are gonna be dramatically different. Uh, I think they worked hard to not, you look, all the states want as much money as they can. So none of them are like, really cutting it to like 5% so that, you know, would you really drive to Jersey to save a dollar on a joint, you know? Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. I, I don't think so. Yeah, that makes sense. John, what do, you, uh, do you have anything to add to that as far as restrictions that might strengthen the existing gray market? Well, maybe I'll approach it from the inverse, which is I think one opportunity that New York City in particular has is in how quickly they activate their social use spaces. I think those are going to be uh, potentially a really compelling way to get people oriented to what the legal market has to offer. Um, I suspect there's going to be a lot of people who are going to say, I like my guy, I like what he has, you know, it works. Uh, but in the social use context, the ability to, to start getting people in front of what the legal market has to offer, uh, particularly on the value added side of the market, I think will be one of the ways in which um, you, you can get consumers oriented to the differences and they're going to be pretty stark between the unregulated market and the legal market, um, start getting them oriented to these uh, value added products uh, and also just kind of start to, to um, rewire the, the orientation of what consuming cannabis in New York has been. So post-legalization, everybody's talking about how, you know, the streets of New York have become a social lounge. I, I, you, know, you can hardly walk a block without walking, without hitting or walking into somebody who is, is smoking a joint on the street. Um, and, you know, there's some dispute about how antisocial that starts to feel in a city that's as densely packed and densely populated as, as New York. So if these social new spaces do offer an inviting kind of community-focused environment that make people feel like, yeah, we don't have to be out on the street. We can find uh, these places where not only we can find great product, but uh, we can also build community. I think that would be one really compelling distinction for the legal market relative to the uh, unregulated market. And, and there is a lot of sort of folks betting that these consumption lounges are gonna be very valuable it's, it's it's still trying to figure out the best way to sort of monetize benefits from it, right. but or maybe affiliated with with other doing things, and they're going to smoke in in these lounges as well, which is a big deal because uh, obviously smoke is otherwise banned in just about everywhere in the city. And one of the things that that, that happened when the bill passed in March was they said immediately, as of, even before they issue licenses or anything, possession of up to three ounces is fully legal, and you can smoke anywhere where that cigarette smoking is allowed. 
And that's why all over the streets you're seeing it. By the way, we were seeing it before. It's not like I was there. You know, I used to get up in my apartment on 46th Street when I was living there and 7.30 a.m. on my way to a breakfast and the garbage guy is getting high while he's dumping garbage. And I'm like, hey, you should, because, you know, you're, you've got enough challenges in your life and you don't really need to be straight to empty garbage. And they're wake and bake, you know? And so, um, but it's even more now. And now what we have are these consumption-focused events in New York, which you can have now, where you say, bring your own stuff. There's an outside area here in our event. You can go do it there. And that's that's started to change a lot of things, which is very exciting. Uh, but I agree with you. We're going to have to change the mindset. But I, I do agree one thing you mentioned earlier, that the tourist community is going to be very, very key for the success of these dispensaries. Because as we're trying to pull people away from their regular guy, the tourists don't have a regular guy in New York. And they're all going to want to see the cool big, you know, I'm sure there are going to be some crazy dispensaries that are going to open in Times Square and places like that. Um, and they're going to become destinations, you know, like a Planet 13 is in Vegas. Uh, and that's going to be exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's so funny you say that, David. I, I like distinctly remember being 12 or 13, walking through Central Park with my parents, my family, and just seeing a guy just smoking a joint, just walking right past me. And I, I remember my jaw dropped. My dad was like, just keep it moving. Just keep it moving. You know, <laughs> nothing to see here. Um, I feel like just growing up in New York and New York City, it's... Uh, like you said, I don't think, I think people have been doing that for a while. <laughs> First time I think I saw it was at, at Tanglewood in, in Massachusetts when I was like 12 or 13 and, yeah. and the concerts that they used to do up there. But anyway, I hear yeah. you. Well, David, you are, you know, you're from New York, you're working in New York. Um, what advice would you offer to cannabis operators who are hoping to find success on the East Coast or in New York in particular? First realize that business and branding are different here on the East Coast, and especially in New York, than the West Coast. I always use the example, I used to represent a brand called Zoo York, if I don't know if you know that brand. They are a skateboard brand here on the East Coast. And they mostly are famous now for apparel more than their skateboards, because they were sold to the Echo Company, and I helped them in that sale. And these are two guys who said, look, the West Coast skateboard culture is surfing and sun and happiness and, and you know, you know, and the East Coast uh, vibe is gritty and graffiti and in your face and, you know, um, and but but really about togetherness and all that as well. And I think with the cannabis brands, there are going to be East Coast and West Coast uh, versions of things. And, and I don't think it's going to be that simple to just take a California brand and drop it here the way it is. Now, there are some people here who are going to want a California vibe to their weed connection. Uh, and I think we have to look at one of the things we have to look at is post federal legalization. Where is the weed in New York going to come from? That's a whole other conversation that we can get into. But I think there are going to be strong New York brands that are going to develop. And then the second thing I advise people is try to work with local players. Um, you know, we're plugged into the regulators and business practices and everything else. And New York regulators kind of want this to be run by New Yorkers. And even though they're not requiring it and so on, there's a vibe of that. And, you know, the last thing I advise people think about coming in is try to not just feel like the only place you can do this is New York City, as we were discussing. There are some, there are so many great uh, cities upstate, Buffalo, Syracuse, Albany, Ithaca, pick any college town 
upstate and you could open a very successful dispensary. Think about areas of the city like Bronx where you might not have thought to do it, but there's obviously a tremendous market there if you wanna you know, bring in some sort of you know, high volume, low cost kind of products there or Queens could be a very interesting market as well. So, you know, be, be open to that is the other thing I tell them. John, anything to add to that? Um, just a couple of things. One, totally agree on this issue of branding. And I think branding is going to be more important in New York than it might have been in, in markets previous, partly because if you look at the illicit market in New York, um, there's a lot of sophisticated brands that are already operating in the market. So um, it's not like, you know, even for, for the people who've been buying from their guy, their guys generally have good brands. So um, you're going to have to level up your game relative to some of the very vanilla types of brands that we've seen um, in, in other markets as they launch. Uh, second, you know, one of the things that we, we really haven't seen a great deal of um, in cannabis is multicultural marketing. And we think New York is going to be a really interesting market for that. There's, um, you know, such an international city. Um, there are very few brands that are speaking to, to um, the non-generic cannabis consumer. And I think there's, there's a lot of missed opportunity there uh, to ta target minority consumers, to target um, uh, the Latina community, Latino community or a Latinx community in particular. Um, and, and so, you know, the the... You know, the, to, to David's point, the California brand or just parachuting in, the Colorado brand just parachuting in, um, may be successful, but I think that there could be a lot of missed opportunity there if you don't think about who the local communities are and start building some of those relationships um, early. So, you know, David, when you were talking about just the difference between, you know, the West Coast and East Coast, I feel like this is in so many different facets of culture, just like, um, like rap music. I mean, people are either West Coast rap and East Coast rap. You either love Biggie, you know, there's such a, it's such a polarizing part of your identity that you identify with. So I could totally see someone wanting to have more of an East Coast vibe and East Coast brand. Yeah, in, my, in, in my era, it's, you know, Beach Boys versus Springsteen, you know, it's the there same. There you go. Thing, exactly. You know. But I feel like you either you either love one or the other, <laughs> or you have a, some kind of allegiance well, to them. I love both. You can like both. You can like both. But I love California. I love going out there. Um, but I love New York so much more. <laughs> John, where do you stand? East Coast or West Coast? You got to choose. <laughs> I'm a globalist, man. <laughs> There's something about New York that, that has me particularly excited just because, uh, like I say, there's a... This idea of New York for so long being the epicenter of American cultural cool and the role that New York is going to play as a global brand ambassador for cannabis in a way that no other jurisdiction has done. Um, you know, I, I think about the role that New York City plays as the country's most visited city. Um, the number of international tourists in particular who are going to experience legal cannabis for the first time as they walk through the streets of New York. Um, certainly places a huge burden on both regulators and on the community on creating an experience that people will um, go through and say, why don't we have this where we live? Um, but the inverse is also very, very likely. I mean, if, if this market ends up being a cluster and, you know, there's no guarantees that it's not going to be, um, then, you know, this could be a, a major setback for particularly the international policy community who are going to be spending time in New York uh, and saying, good Lord, we absolutely do not want this here. So, um, it's, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, but I'm really, really bullish about, uh, or really excited to see, I should say, um, how, how New York manages this extraordinary opportunity that it has um, to showcase cannabis to the world. 
Absolutely. Well, we are almost out of time. David, we give our guests the opportunity to give a shout out to someone in the industry that you think is doing something great. So by all means, you have the floor. Well, I'm going to give my shout out to the great Jean Sullivan. Um, Jean is a very close friend. Uh, she and I work on some consulting projects together. Uh, she is just one of the OG sort of rock stars in the industry. I love when she says, you know, from coming here from technology that she went from SaaS to grass, you know, and she just has, besides being just an amazing, energetic speaker, uh, she is so super knowledgeable about every aspect of how this business is run and being an active venture capitalist as she is in the space. Um, she sees so many deals and so many opportunities that when we're working with companies raising money or doing M&A, we know what other things are happening in the industry and it's very exciting. And she is a New Yorker as well uh, and is very excited about this New York market. And we're working with some of the hemp players who are now gonna get this sort of golden ticket to produce early, which I think is actually a brilliant thing that, that New York is trying to do. And I know you have your, your concerns about it in terms of quality, John, which is legit. Um, but the idea that before the permanent licenses are issued to anybody, they're gonna start growing. Uh, so that they won't face or they'll have less of a problem that other states have had when they open dispensaries and there's no product uh, because the growers haven't geared up enough. And I think that's exciting. And it's also helping these struggling hemp players that have really uh, faced a challenge with, you know, oversupply and everything else, which I think in the next three to five years is going to sort itself out. Um, but I defer to you over there uh, in terms of that. But it's so it's we're working with them and Jean has just been all over this very excited uh, and she's um, you know working with a lot of exciting companies and I'm happy to always give her a shout out all right rock on Jean well thank you guys all thank you for joining us thank you for taking the time David and John and thank you to our listeners at Canada Week and again please be sure to like subscribe hit the notification bell and if you really love us leave us a five-star review um, I am your host, Heather Wickline, and we will see you next time. New Frontier Data provides this podcast for entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated in this podcast should be taken as legal or financial advice. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by the company. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by New Frontier Data employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the view of the company or any of its officials. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact our legal department.